I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll be considering verses 27 through 36 this evening. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Now we are continuing our way through what has been traditionally referred to as are called the Sermon on the Plains. The Sermon on the Plains. It has many similarities with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which you may be familiar with in Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7. This likely is a different occasion where Jesus is reusing much of his material. Just like any good teacher, uh, they reuse their material more than once. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here as he is giving and delivering this sermon to his disciples. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word. And Jesus says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, Offer the other also. And for the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. But if you do good to those who do good to you, What benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil." Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, if you recall from a couple weeks ago, Jesus has come down from the mountain, this mountain whereby he called the twelve apostles. And he has come down this mountain, and in verse 17 we read that he is on this level place, hence the term Sermon on the Plains. And he begins this sermon by issuing forth these blessings, these beatitudes upon his disciples. We saw that these beatitudes, these blessings, are not exhortations. They are declarations of what is already true of his people, his disciples. We consider how the main, the main point, the main thing Jesus was wanting us to get from that section was that our blessedness as the people of God does not reside in the circumstances of our life, but rather in our membership in the kingdom of God. We see that point both of them as blessings and as corresponding woes. That is to say, if things are going really well in your life circumstantially, we shouldn't automatically equate that with ultimate blessing from God. On the flip side, if things are going terrible in our life, we shouldn't automatically equate that with us being somehow cursed from God. Our blessedness, our ultimate blessedness, transcends circumstances. That's what Jesus is wanting us to see. And 
What's central? What's central in this section, the rest of chapter 6, this sermon that Jesus is, is, is giving to his disciples, is the kingdom of God. Our blessedness resides in our membership in the kingdom of God. And Jesus wants us to keep in mind this idea of the kingdom. As now he is transitioning to teach his followers, those who are members of this kingdom, what kind of lifestyle, what kind of ethic should members of the kingdom embody? And in this passage, he's focusing specifically on love. Members of his kingdom should display a distinctive love, a kingdom love. And that's the main idea, the main theme that I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this this evening, this kingdom love, the love that, that should embody those who belong to the kingdom of God. And there are three things, three aspects to this kingdom love that Jesus is wanting us to see in this passage. He wants us to see the newness of kingdom love. He wants us to see the nature of kingdom love. And lastly, the motivation for kingdom love. So the newness, the nature, and the motivation for kingdom love. Well, if you look with me in your Bibles, at the very beginning of this passage, verse 27, you'll note how Jesus begins by saying, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Love your enemies. Now, for those of us who've been in the church for any amount of time or are somewhat familiar with our New Testaments, this probably doesn't seem that striking to us. Probably seems intuitive, basic. Of course, we are called to love our enemies. But for the disciples, this would have been utterly striking. It would have had an air of novelty to it. Why? Why would this have been so so striking to his disciples? Well, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament, which the disciples would have been very familiar with, they would have been steeped in, in, the, in the Old Testament scriptures, we read that Israel lived in a theocracy, which essentially means there, there was really no distinction between the church and the state. Everything was holy. And thus, they were at times called to hate their enemies. Now, bear with me for a moment. In Deuteronomy 7, Deuteronomy 7, 16, as as God is preparing Israel to enter into the holy land of Canaan, he tells them that when you enter this land, you shall utterly consume the nations that reside in that land. And do not even let your eye pity them. That's what God tells Israel. Further, there's many psalms that, that... that speak to a similar idea, but in Psalm 139 in particular, listen to what David says. He says, Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred. I count them my enemies. So as Israel entered this holy land, it called for a holy hatred. But it's very important to notice that this only, this only was for, this ethic was only for Israel's time in this holy land, the land of Canaan. When they left the land in exile in Babylon, they were called to love their enemies, love their neighbors. But in the land, this holy land, God called them to a certain holy hatred. 
And it pointed the people of God forward to the second coming of Christ, when all that which is unholy will be cast out. At that time in redemptive history, God had given his people the sword to exercise vengeance against, against his enemies. And the disciples, as they're hearing Jesus preach this sermon, they had a wrong expectation of, of Israel's Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah, Jesus, to come and renew this theocracy, to set up a physical throne in Jerusalem, to lead a new holy war, to finally deliver the Jews out of the grip of the Romans. They expected Jesus to crush their enemies, not to call them to love them. And this is exactly what the medieval church, the medieval church got wrong. This is how they read their Bibles wrong, is they saw themselves in a lot of ways as a new Israel in a new holy land called to conquest, called to, to a, a holy war. They really saw themselves as living before the coming of Christ rather than after the coming of Christ. So Jesus is saying here that no longer the people of God called to bear the sword. Rather, his disciples are now called to love their enemies. The theocracy is, is no more. Jesus has come. And his people, his followers, are called to, to love, to love their enemies. Now, again, I think Jesus intends this, this passage to, to wake us up a bit. I noted last time how the blessings and, and the woes kind of did that same thing. You read those, especially the, the first century hearers, they would have heard this sermon. It would have caught your attention, it would have made you think. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the, those who mourn, woe to those who laugh, woe to those who speak well of you. It's paradoxical. It's like a splash of cold water in the face. I believe this passage is meant to do a, 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 have a similar effect. Love your enemies? It seems counterintuitive. It seems to cut against the grain of, of our nature. But what does it mean? What does it mean to love one's enemies? Is this a feeling? Is this an emotion? So I'd like us to now consider in more detail what this actually looks like, practically, or more practically. What's the nature of this kingdom love? Yes, there's a certain novelty to this kingdom love, but what's the nature of, of this kingdom love? Well, before we can consider what it means to love, we first need to know who it is that we're loving. What, what does Jesus mean by this reference to enemy? And I think there's at least two references that, that we can glean from this, 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 this idea of enemy. First, we all know that a healthy relationship is based on mutual respect. I seek to show respect to others, and I, I expect others to respect me. Or you can think of it another way. I, healthy relationships are based on the golden rule. I seek to, to treat others as I would want to be treated, and I have a general expectation that others are going to do the same to me. But what happens when others don't do that? Rather than respect you, they disrespect you. Rather than seeking your good, they, they seem to be seeking your harm. So I think those type of relationships is one application of, of enemies. Those who, who show disrespect, who seek your harm in some, in some way. How do we respond? 
And of course, when you think about those instances, it's not just relationships outside the church. Those relationships can even happen within the church. And we probably all can think of such relationships in our own past experience. Well, second, and maybe more directly to what Jesus has in mind, are those who have radically different convictions, values, or worldview than, than we do. And our culture has very much posited this, this relationship of enemy between conservative Christians and those who are socially liberal or atheistic in their convictions, values, and, and worldview. I think these individuals are part of who Jesus has in mind for, for our enemies, those who have very different values, convictions, beliefs, worldview. And one temptation for us as Christians is to sort of silo off and form our own little monastic community where we only interact with other, other Christians and not, and not the people who culture says is our enemy. And here, I think Jesus has in mind that we would pursue in love even those people in our own communities and life. So if we think of enemies as those who who seek to show disrespect or harm to us in some way, and as those who are radically different from us, what does it mean then to actually love them? The word love is is thrown around so much in our society, in in our culture, What does it mean when Jesus says that we are called to love, to love even our enemies? Is this a feeling? Is this an emotion? Because if it's a feeling and emotion, it's going to be quite difficult. Because oftentimes our feeling and emotions are really telling us to hate rather than to love our enemies. If we wait around for a feeling, we may never get to actually loving. But what we see here is that Jesus does not have in mind a feeling or emotion. Primarily, He has in mind an act of the will. He's calling us to action. He's very objective, very clear about what it means to actually love our enemies. So if you look in your Bible, it's the rest of verses 27 through 28. Oftentimes when you're reading your Bible, you just need to continue to read. Because the rest of verses 27 and 28 explicate what it means to actually love our enemies in a concrete way. It means doing good to those who hate you. It means blessing those who curse you. It means praying for those who abuse you. So doing good, blessing, praying, that's what it means to love our enemies. They're very concrete acts of the will. I believe that the way we can approach this is by tackling it in a reverse progression. We all know that this is difficult. Loving our enemies in this way is difficult. So if we're struggling to do, to do tangible good things, actions towards those who are enemies in our life, we need to begin with praying for them. Once we're praying for them, then we'll be able to bless them, speak well of them. And once we're praying and, and blessing them, then we'll be at a place where we can actually do tangible deeds of goodness towards them. So it all begins with praying. Let me ask you, are you you praying for those people in your life who are difficult to love? Neighbors? Other Christians? Are you praying for those people who are difficult to love? Are you blessing them, speaking well of them? Are you seeking to intentionally do good 
towards that. This is what Jesus has in mind for how we, we love our enemies. A great example of, of this that came to mind when I was uh, preparing for this sermon is demonstrating the testimony of Rosario Butterfield. Some of you may have heard of her before. She was a lesbian feminist professor at the University of Syracuse in the 1990s. And she was researching, doing research for a book on why the religious right is so hateful. And she wrote an op-ed for a local newspaper that, on, on this topic and elicited many responses. Some were positive, some were negative. But one such response came from a local uh, Reformed and Presbyterian pastor. And this letter invited Rosario to dinner at his house with him and his wife. And she was thinking about this, you know, should I go, shouldn't I go? And then she thought, well, why not? This is going to be a free research assistant on the very topic that I'm wanting to research on. So she went, and this, this dinner sparked a relationship, and many other dinners ensued as this pastor continued to, to show hospitality uh, to her. And after a couple of years, she actually converted through reading the scriptures, through the hospitality of this, of this pastor. And as she reflects upon her own conversion and testimony, she cites how impactful this pastor's hospitality was on her own conversion. Specifically, she says that the first time uh, she went to dinner at this pastor's house, he didn't share the gospel, he didn't invite her to church. And this communicated to her that the pastor viewed her not as a project, but as a person. And wanted a relationship with, with her. I think this is a great example of what it means to love our enemies. Someone who society would say, you know, a pastor and a, a, a lesbian feminist professor. They have no business interacting together. This pastor sought her out, loved her, and she came to faith. Is now doing much for the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, as we are a part of a church plant, a church plant in, here in, in Gig Harbor, this is one of the ways in which we will grow. It's by all of us seeking to love our enemies, our neighbors, our community members. Those whom culture says we have no business associating with. We are called to love our enemies. As we do so, this is one way in which we shine as a light to a fallen world. As we love those within us, within our midst, and as we love those outside of our midst. This love is counterintuitive. The world doesn't get this kind of non-retaliatory love. But this is how we shine as lights in the midst of darkness. You know, it's important to say that our love will not convert anybody. It's not our love that converts people to, uh, to Christ. The gospel, the message of the gospel is where the power of God unto conversion is found. However, if we think of the gospel, sharing the gospel, preaching the gospel as sowing seed, right? Sowing gospel seed. Our love is like laying rich, fertile soil that the Spirit of God can use to cause root, a root to form and a seed to blossom. Well, one question that, that may be in your mind and is oftentimes asked as we consider this passage as well as its parallel in the Sermon on the Mount is passivism. You know, can Christians engage in, in the military, militaristic warfare? 
Can we do this and still be true to this ethic that Jesus is putting forth for us? And many pacifist theologians cite this passage as well as its parallel in the Sermon on the Mount to say that Christians have no business in engaging in such things. So I'd say briefly comment on this. I'm not going to spend much time, but briefly, briefly comment on it. I believe the key question in this, in this debate is over what kingdom Jesus is referring to when he is laying down this ethic. What kingdom is Jesus referring to when he's laying down this ethic? If I, remi- if I can remind you of the context, which we considered a couple weeks ago, in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God in the Gospels is very much related, associated with the church. Or to put it another way, the kingdom of God finds its manifestation in this life in the church of Jesus Christ. So again, what kingdom is Jesus referring to? The civil or common kingdom or the spiritual kingdom? Well, Jesus very much has in mind the kingdom of God, which is realized in the church. He has in mind the spiritual kingdom. And God has two kingdoms. He has two kingdoms that he rules in different ways. So there's the the common or the civil kingdom, which also has ministers in the magistrate. It has weapons in the sword. It has an ethic in an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, strict, punitive, uh, retributive justice. There's also the spiritual kingdom, the church, which has ministers, of course, and elders and pastors. It has an ethic, non-retaliatory love. Paul even says that the spiritual kingdom has weapons, not in the sword, but in the word and the sacraments. It has discipline, not punitive, retributive, but restorative. So as Jesus is laying down this ethic, he has in mind the church, the spiritual kingdom. He's not referring to the common kingdom. He, Paul refers to that in Romans 13, as he says that the magistrate has been given the sword by God to punish the evildoer, those who violate the rights of other individuals. So here he's referring to the spiritual kingdom. So the church, what this tells us is the church is not to engage in holy warfare. We're not to lead any sort of crusades. But the state has divine authorization to protect its citizenry. And we see that throughout Scripture. Romans 13, 1 Peter 2, and elsewhere. So that distinction about what kingdom is Jesus referring to is the key question, I think, uh, to this debate, which shows us that I think the pacifist interpretation is is wrong when viewed in this light. Well, this ethic, right, this ethic which uh, we have considered under this point is hard. If we just reflect in our own experience, this is hard to live out. And just like any pursuit in our life that's difficult, if we don't have the proper motivation, we are not going to be able to reach the goal that is before us. So what motivation does Jesus give to us to propel us forward to love, especially when it's hard? Well, I think there's at least two motivations. Two motivations that we can glean from this text that Jesus wants 
uh, to use to propel us in our love, this counterintuitive love for our enemies. So if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 35, Jesus says, when we love this way, we will be sons of the Most High. You will be sons of the Most High. Now, Jesus isn't saying that we earn our membership in the kingdom of God by our love. Rather, he's saying, you are members. That's what he just got done saying. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Saying you are members, but as members, you are called to a certain lifestyle, a certain ethic, a certain code of conduct. And we know this in ordinary lives. We all have certain statuses in in this world, associations and maybe a company and a family and so forth. And these, the status or these statuses, they call us to a certain conduct, a certain lifestyle, a certain ethic. And so too with the kingdom of God. We are sons, we are members of the kingdom, and thus we are called to live like our Father. And how, what does our Heavenly Father do? Well, in verses 35 and 36, we see that he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. He's merciful. He's merciful. The parallel passage in the Sermon on the Mount cites as examples of this common kindness the, the rain that falls and the sun that rises. Now, here in western Washington, every single day of the year, we have one of those, too. Either the sun We see the sun or the rain is falling. And so every single day, we have a reminder of our Heavenly Father's common kindness to his enemies. And thus a reminder that we are called to do likewise. We are called to extend this kindness, this love to our own enemies. So the character of God is one motivation. But the second motivation is the cross. To direct your attention uh, to verse 29. Verse 29 was one kind of illustration of, of how we, we are to do good to our enemies. Verse 29, Jesus says, To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. Again, strict justice would say, if you are slapped on the cheek, a second retaliatory slap is needed. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. If you're slapped on the cheek, a second retaliatory slap is needed. But rather than you slapping the other person, Jesus is saying, no, you bear the second retaliatory slap. There needs to be two slaps, but instead of the other person receiving the slap, you receive the slap. As one author has noted, this is a a glorious demonstration of the gospel. Think of our sin as a slap to God. God is holy. He is righteous, perfect. And when we sin, we ultimately don't sin against other people. We ultimately sin against God. We do sin against other people, but our ultimate sin is a sin against God. It's a slap to his holiness, his righteousness, his perfection. And therefore, strict justice says a second retaliatory slap is needed. We deserve, if God is just, to bear the wrath and the punishment that our sin deserves. We've slapped God. We deserve that second retaliatory slap. But what is the cross? The cross is where God in Christ takes the second retaliatory slap. 
Therefore, the cross is a beautiful picture of the justice and mercy of God. Whereas justice is upheld, the second retaliatory slap is still put forth. But Christ bears it. God takes the the second retaliatory slap in Christ. And we then are called to display this gospel love to those who are in our own life. Therefore, brothers and sisters, this is our motivation. The gospel is our motivation. Our motivation to love when it's hard. No sin that's committed against us, no offense that's committed against us is close to as great as the offense we commit against a holy God. And yet, we see that Christ did not retaliate, but willingly received that second slap. Or as John says, we love because Christ has first loved us. Well, brothers and sisters, beloved in the Lord, Jesus began this passage by saying, but I say to you who hear. Let us be a people who not only hear, but learn and even inwardly digest this teaching, this word that Christ has for us this evening, that we may display this non-retaliatory love that was displayed towards us on the cross.